Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. All right, we want to welcome everyone back as we're continuing the study of the early chapters of Genesis. We're going to move a little quicker now as we get pick up speed. Tonight, we're going to be doing Genesis chapters five and six, or the beginning of chapter six, because we know that we're going to get stuck in the beginning of the chapter. And then we'll do six, seven, eight, and nine in our next study, the flood narrative. And then we'll do the Tower of Babel and the genealogy of uh, chapters 10 and 11 after that. And then we'll take a break for a few weeks. So that's our plan. And what I discussed last week was the fact that we often read Genesis as though the creation story is chapters one and two, the fall is chapter three, and then we kind of work our way to redemption and Jesus and restoration. And then obviously the new, the new creation at the end of the story. And so chapters three of Genesis and everything else in between is like between the fall or chapter four in Genesis is between the fall and redemption. And what I pointed out last week was, I don't think chapter three is the fall. I think the fall is continuing. And what we saw last week was, you know, Cain kills Abel. Okay. Now we're getting, so we had conflict in the, in the human family in Genesis three, Adam and Eve now have, they're supposed to rule together. They're one. They rule as one. They rule as equals. And all of a sudden now they're not ruling as equals. There's enmity in, in the relationship that Eve wants to dominate the husband, but the husband's going to, Adam's going to dominate and rule over her and rule in a nasty domineering way. And they're not even one and they realize their nakedness. But then we get to chapter four and now we have murder and Cain kills his brother. And then guess what happens after that? Uh, Lamech kills two kids for like looking at him the wrong way. And he's boasting about it. Genesis five and Genesis six are leading us into the flood narrative. So what's going to happen is it's going to get so bad that God's going to say, you know what? Let me kind of start over again. What we have in Genesis 5, well, actually at the end of chapter 4. Let's go to the end of chapter 4 for a second. Somebody want to read Genesis 4, 25 and 26? Adam again had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to a son whom she called Seth. God granted, God has granted me more offspring in place of Abel, she said, because Cain slew him. To Seth, in turn, a son was born, and he, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to invoke the Lord by name. All right, very good. Thank you, Jackie. So the first thing that we see is, remember this biblical story. I think this is like so important. I've probably said it a hundred times, but that's okay. The biblical story is a story of a conflict of kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. And that story is reflected in Genesis 3. I think the key first to start us all off is in Genesis 3.16. And it says, actually, in Genesis 3, 15, talking to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is the biblical story. From here on out, the story is going to be this conflict between the serpent or the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And obviously, ultimately, Christ is the, is the seed of the woman. And there's the seed of the serpent is obviously manifesting himself in many ways, but he's opposing the work of Christ. This is the storyline of the biblical text. So as you're going to the book of Genesis, pretending that you're a novice, pretending that you don't know the rest of the story, you don't know about Abraham yet, you don't know about Moses, you don't know about Jesus, you don't know David or any of these other people. What we're doing is we're trying to figure out, well, who's going to be the seed of the woman? Well, it's not Cain and Abel. Okay, great. So, oh, guess what? She has another child. Oh, and it's Seth, whose name, and the word Seth means name. So, okay, cool. She named her son name. She named him Seth, for God has given me an, another offspring. And the word 
this is New American Standard, verse 25, Genesis 4, verse 25. The word offspring is seed. Ah, there you go. It's Seth. I mean, if you're reading the text right now, you think Seth is going to be the answer because he specifically is the seed. He said to be the seed of the woman. So does that make sense how we're reading the storyline? So now we go to chapter five. And what happens in chapter five? Well, chapter five, we now are going to have 10 generations. Remember, Cain's generations in chapter, uh, chapter four was seven generations, and it got like really bad. Now we're going to have 10 generations. Let's read verses one through three. Genesis five, verses one through three. If somebody wants to read. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Very good. What stands out, especially those of you that have been with us for a while, and even if you haven't been with us, you might recognize some things there. What stands out in those three verses? That, what do you see there? Well, the, you know, similar to when God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, he created them in his own likeness. There you go. It seems to be repeating that theme here that God is continuing that theme in mankind. Yeah. I mean, look at verse two. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man and the day they were created. I mean, that's that's Genesis 1 and 2 again. Obviously, you have when in the day that God created man, he made him in this in the likeness of man. And now notice Seth. What does it say about Seth? He's in the likeness of Adam. Yeah, he's in the likeness of Adam. So we have likeness and image being repeated in these verses, in verses 1 and verses 3. So he had a son according to his image. But Adam was made in the image of God. So that makes Seth being made in the image of God. Oh, this is our answer. We need an image bearer who's going to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and subdue the earth. Adam and Eve failed to do it because they didn't choose wisdom from God. They choose wisdom from man, all the things that we discussed. Seth's going to be our answer. And that's, if you're reading the story, that's what we think. But it's quick to find out that's actually not the case. Um, in fact, we don't even have a whole lot going on with Seth. Chapter five is going to be 10 generations from Adam to Noah. So if uh, of verse 30, Lamech lived 595 years and he became the father of Noah. He had other sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 700. And then Noah was 500 years old. He became the father of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. So the first thing to note is uh, Noah's name means rest. Okay, so the, the numbers are actually, I'm not going to make a big deal out of them, but this is, you're, the author's telling you that he's constructing this in a certain way. Seven generations here, 10 generations here very intentional that the numbers have some kind of role and seven of course the seven days of creation perfection completion totality tens the number for the law uh, the ten laws the ten commandments 12 for the people of god these numbers certain have and they're just used consistently names for god are used a certain number of times 35 times here seven times five so now we have 10 generations from noah from adam to noah and noah's name means rest and when we get to the noah account in chapter six through nine next week, what we're going to notice is the fact that this is another creation account. All the animals come to him two by two. What was the, the first time the animals came to someone two by two was, 
Because it happened before. It happened. It went, Adam, when he named him. Yeah, Adam. And he named all the animals. God brings all the animals to Adam to find a suitable helper. And Adam names all the animals. Guess what? The ark is Eden. Right? The ark is Eden. It's a place of God's protection, a place of God's presence. In the midst of what? In the midst of the storms all around. When you look at the storyline, you see, okay, the author is creating this incredibly beautiful story. All right, so here we go. So now, as you go through chapter five, and it's just a genealogy, so we won't go through a whole lot, a whole lot of it. So look at verse 10. Uh, Enos lived 815 years after, after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. Uh, and then verse 12, Kenan lived 70 years. He became the father of Mahalal. And then he had other sons, verse 13, he had other sons and daughters. It's only describing one child. In each one of the genealogies, each one of the generations, a person's name, how old he was when they had when this person had a child, obviously it's always a male. And then almost always it says he had other sons and daughters, and then he died when he was this, this old, and then so-and-so. Now, I think this came up last time, by the way. There are a couple names that are repeated. I was, so there are a few names in Genesis 4 that are in Genesis 5, and you could simply say, well, the reality is, yeah, you have all these kids, somebody's going to name their son the same name as you know, one of um, one of Cain's children is named the same as I think Enoch and Lamech are both in Noah's or in Seth's genealogy and in Cain's genealogy. It's, they're different people. That's fine. So, but notice when you get to verse 32 now, when you get to verse 32, Noah was 500 years old and became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So why do you suppose all three are mentioned? They have a significance in the coming story. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're players in the next story. They're, they're on the ark. And after they get off the ark, they're the ones that populate this. When you go to the table of nations, in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, you're going to have this genealogy of the descendants of Shem, the, Genesis, the descendants of Ham, and the descendants of Japheth. They populate the earth, if you want to look at it that way. So absolutely. Very good, Sandy. Okay. So here we go. Let's see if there's anything other, other notes. Hey, Rob. Yep. Very good. Yep. A couple of weeks back, you mentioned that uh, the human genome indicates that there's 16 original people. Obviously the eight doesn't equal 16, but if we looked at everybody getting wiped out, we're going back to eight and starting over, right? Well, yes, but the question is going to be, are we intended to read the Genesis flood narrative as this global flood? Well, that's, the general evangelical conservative reading of that. But how do you get descendants of Cain after the flood? If there's, if the flood was global, how do you get Genesis six? We're going to have the, these giants on the earth. Well, the giants were all wiped out in the flood, but there's giants in the book of numbers. There's clearly people from before the flood and living after the flood and they weren't on the ark. So I think when you look at the story itself, it's not intended to be this global flood. Um, and of course, the, you know, it says, well, all the mountains were covered. And the, answer, and, and the question that you ask is, you say, well, all the mountains from the author's perspective or all the mountains from God's perspective? And that's really the fundamental question. And you can go either way on that, because what, what are we going to do? Is it the Moses or Noah or, or some Israelite later on saying, as far as people could tell, all the mountains were covered. That doesn't mean that all mountains were covered. It just means all the ones that they could see. Now, that's yeah. interesting, too, though, because like the History Channel, and I'm, I'm not going to base my theology on the History Channel, yeah, that's okay. but they, they do talk of like uh, flood accounts or flood narratives yes. in a lot of the cultures around the globe. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And, but most of those flood accounts, if I'm not mistaken, are most all localized floods. They're not global floods. Mm -hmm. So if Noah's flood is to be compared with these ancient floods, then it's not a, it's not a global flood either.
So, but I'm not an expert on that. So don't quote me on that. I'll have to check that. I'll have to double check that. So I think that's the thing that you're going to see people before the flood and they're just going to show up after the flood. There's no other way to describe it. It's a, well, the flood's not a, a global flood. So I'm very good. Okay. So uh, now what about uh, the long lifespans? Cause that's always this question that gets raised. All right. So here's the deal. Young earth creationists. And I'll just say there's, there's young earth creationists. And then there's kind of everybody else on this one. Young earth creationists believe that Adam and Eve are little people that lived 10 to 15, maybe no more than 50,000 years ago. And if you draw the flood back, it happened, you know, 4,000, whatever it was, 20 something BC, 2000 something BC. And everything's been taken this little, little state. And you go, okay, well, how do people live long lives? And their answer is that the conditions of the earth before the flood were such that it was more conducive to longer lives. And that after the flood, they begin to live significantly lesser, uh, shorter lifespans. That's their explanation. The conditions of the world after the flood changed the, not just the geography, the, the geography, but uh, the climate and sun and exposure and everything else. That's kind of their answer. Everyone else just simply looks at it and goes, this is not meant to be taken literally. So why are we even asking the question? And we actually now have, and I put this in the script up above in the top of your notes, uh, these ancient Sumerian texts and a, a number of ancient texts where these people live really long lives. In fact, I think one king named like 43,369 years. Um, so if you think the 900 years of Noah, of, of Adam and these guys are long, or Methuselah's 969 years is a long time. It's nothing. These kings are reigning 20,000 years and 30,000 years and 40,000 years. And there's no way anyone's taking that uh, seriously or legitimately. It's like, that was that. And obviously if you're a young earth creationist, you don't believe that because you don't believe the earth's been around that long. Because uh, I think I'm putting the notes. You have five, eight kings who ruled in five cities for a total of 241,200 years. Uh, one king reigned for over, over 443,000 years. Uh, so uh, another 39 kings ruled for 26,997 years. So um, I don't, I don't, that's simply the way they describe things and that way they discuss things. It's hyperbole if it's in that sense there that I'm such a great king. Look how many people I ruled. Look how domineering I was. Look how many nations I, I conquered and look how long I lived. That's just apparently the way they did it. So, okay. Now the next question then is let's get to chapter six. All right. Chapter six. And uh, let's see, uh, verses one through four. Now it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man forever, because he is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Pretty straightforward. I don't think we can move on to the next section if you want, right? So, Easily one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. And I think it's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible because we have constructed a theology that it's really hard to fit this into the theology. And let's just be honest. I think if we were to simply go, okay, what would this have meant in the ancient world? What could Moses or whoever wrote this be writing, be saying? How would they have thought about it? I think actually it's not that hard. It's still like, um, okay, I know what it means, but I don't understand what it's saying. 
So we have these two problems. Number one is we can't really understand what the ancient text is saying very well because it doesn't fit with our worldview and perspective. And then once we do understand what it's saying really well, it's like, okay, still doesn't really make sense to me anyway. So uh, we're stuck either way we go. So let's, let's, let's kind of, let me kind of run through the text and then we'll go back to this last big question of who are these sons of God and things of that nature. Uh, there's, we go. and you can ask questions, but we'll see how, how we go. So mankind is increasing. In fact, it says they were multiplying. That's what they're supposed to be doing, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Awesome. Good news. Excuse me. And daughters were born to them. Now, it doesn't mean sons weren't born to them. It's just simply what's relevant for this particular story is that the daughters were born to them. So now that the sons of God, okay, verse two, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were, well, the, most of your translations say beautiful, right? They saw that they were beautiful. The ESV says attractive. Tell me if you have something else you're willing to jump in. Uh, fair. Fair? Really? Yeah. Uh, oh, you have the New King James, right, Anthony? No, the uh, NRSV. NRSV, yep. And uh, NRSV says fair. I, I can see it there now, yep. Uh, New King James says beautiful. Um, New Living Translation says beautiful. Uh, NIV says beautiful. Uh, Net Bible says beautiful. All right, attractive ESV. All right. Most of your Bible, if you have a paper Bible or whatever, it should have a footnote near it, right? Saying for that word. And the footnote says it's the word good. Now, the word good can mean beautiful, because obviously I saw that the women were they, they were, they were good and they took them for wives. Okay, so clearly it has, I don't know, it's beautiful is not a bad translation. It's, it's accurate, attractive, fair. Those are all fine translations. But what we're learning as we read the text is these words are key because they link you to something else. What is, the word good is a very important word in the first three chapters, right? When, when do you see the word good in the first several chapters of Genesis? When God says this creation's good. Yeah, God says it repeatedly. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, right? Then, verse six. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. There you go. Genesis 3, verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now notice what happens. She saw that it was good. And what did she do? She took it. Verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6. I have the New American Standard again. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. And she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 6 again and read it again. So what happens? Well, the sons of God saw, Genesis 6 verse 2, that the daughters of men were good, and they took wives for themselves. It's another fall narrative, isn't it? It's what Adam and Eve did in the Eden, except it's upside down. And we'll discuss why it's upside down here in a little bit. The first fill in the blank, I think, on your notes is saw. She's, they saw that those were beautiful or good. And then the next one is took, and they took wives for themselves. Same word that used uh, Eve saw her perception of the fruit, Genesis 3, verse 6, and it was good. And she saw the fruit was good for food, and she took. In my notes, it says, spiritual beings being tempted by human women is an inversion of the garden. Do you guys have that line on your notes? Okay, good. It's an inversion of the garden. Humans were tempted by spiritual beings. So in the garden, the serpent tempts Eve. And in this story, women tempt the serpent or tempt 
the sons of God. Now we have to figure out who the sons of God are. Some of you might not have a good idea. Does that make sense? The inversion of the story? I'll say it one more time. Spiritual beings tempted by human women are, is an inversion of the garden when humans were tempted by spiritual beings. All right, so now God expresses his displeasure. And the next one in the blank is my spirit will not strive with flesh forever. Verse three. So the Lord said, guess what? My spirit will not strive with humanity, mankind, forever, because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. And the 120 years is very likely a reference to how many more years until the flood. Okay, and again, whether this is literal or not, it's 10 times 12. So that tells you the significance of the number 120. But people say, oh, mankind can only live 120 years from this point forward. And like, no, Abraham lived 175 years. And Abraham's way after this. So people are living longer than 120 years. Moses lived 120 years, but people after this point in time are living more than 120 years. It can't refer to lifespans. It has to be the number of years until the flood. And if you do the chronology of the flood narrative, if you're able to do that, it seems to suggest that's that's what's happening. It's whether we should take that chronology literally or or not. So the spirit though is important because if we go back to Genesis chapter one, the spirit is the agent through which God created Genesis chapter one. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we discussed the fact that Genesis 1 verse 1 probably should be translated in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, they were already there and now he's forming them. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There you go. And that's really important when you go through the rest of the biblical story, because you can't underemphasize Pentecost here. The spirit of God is the agent through which God does his creating. And so now God's like, you know, I'm going to take my spirit away. If you take the spirit away, guess what happens? It's death. And you could obviously go to Genesis 2. Adam was a corpse and God gave him his spirit. And Adam became a living being. So the spirit is very significant. So my spirit will not strive uh, with mankind or with his flesh forever. Any questions as we go? Now, verse 4, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? because it seems to be really weird. So Genesis uh, 6, verse 4, and it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. And again, no, th- by the way, the Nephilim, I think it's Numbers 1333, if I put that in your notes or not. Numbers 1333. The, the word Nephil- Nephilim only occurs twice in the Bible. Once here in Genesis 6, uh, in, the old, in the Hebrew Bible. And secondly, in Numbers 1333, the spies go check out the land. Remember, hey, hey, go check out the land. We're going to conquer this land. Ten spies come back and go, we can't conquer the land. Why? Because there's giants in the land. And the word for giants is Nephilim. But the Nephilim were in Genesis chapter 6. Again, they weren't all wiped out in the flood. Is the only way you can reconcile that. Right, so, but the question is like, well, who are they? Well, then we're told. Well, they're mighty men. And that phrase is going to come up. End of verse 4. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So just kind of chalk that in the back of your mind. We'll pay attention to that when we get to chapters 10 and 11. Um, hey, but of uh, course, yeah, go ahead, Anthony. Real quick, NRSV says warriors of renown. Yeah, go warriors. <laughs> Not those kind of warriors. These are bad warriors. So, right? Uh, so, and of course, uh, the most famous of these, Nim- uh, of these mighty men is, is a man named Nimrod, uh, this mighty warrior. So... Uh, and he's the builder of Nineveh, which that's... 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. The mighty man of renown, they're apparently the same thing as a Nephilim, whatever they are, they're old, they're famous. You know what I'm talking about, whoever the recipients of this text are about. So now the question is going to be, well, who are the sons of God? So uh, three ideas on who the sons of God are. First option is, what's the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain? So the godly line of Seth, the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain. Now, the problem is, where do you get that from? Number one, it, that's not what the word sons of God actually means in, in the Bible. It's never used that way. But as far as we know, Cain's off somewhere else right now, right? He, remember, his, him and his family were separated from everybody else because they were going to be slaughtered and everything else. So Cain went somewhere else and built a city. It's just, that's an awkward idea. But again, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take this, that view is trying to take things literally and read things without the spiritual dimension, only in terms of, okay, this, this is only human cost. The problem with saying it's only human cost, these aren't spiritual beings, is the fact that, well, we know that there were spiritual beings in Genesis 3. And we know that Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 are kind of inverting one another. So the second option is the sons of God are kings dynastic rulers. And that is true because sons of God does kind of have this reference to kings and the daughters of men are their harems. So their sin is polygamy. And the problem is, is that sons of God are the word sons, plural, is never used that way. So a king could be a son of God, but king, but sons, plural, are never used for kings. All right, the last option, and we'll discuss this more as we proceed. Sons of God are the Elohim. In fact, the word actually is sons of Elohim, the B'nai Elohim. So sons of Elohim. And the word Elohim is ordinarily used either of angels or of that divine counsel that we talked about if you were with us in Genesis chapter one. Um, when God says, let us make man in our image, God's speaking this divine counsel. Now, let me briefly kind of remind you about the divine counsel and that idea. And then we'll come back to it in a little bit. The idea is this, God makes Adam and Eve let's talk about humanity for a second, to rule in his place. I know it's God's like, you know what? I can rule. I'm totally good at this and it'll be fine, but I'm going to create humanity. I'm going to rule through them. And as he creates people to, to give them power, to give them authority, to give them privilege and the opportunity to exercise authority. And as God has no problem delegating, which is a sign of someone who's really kind of good in their own skin. You know how that, that CEO that doesn't want any one of his vice presidents to get any, any authority around him because they might take his position on the board someday. God's not that way. He's the CEO that's like, I'm totally good. You know, if you get a lot of power, that's good for you because I'm not threatened by you in any, any bit whatsoever. Think of it that way. God's good in his own skin and he has no problem delegating authority. Well, he does that not only with humanity, he also does that with what we might call spiritual beings. And I'm just going to try to not use the word angels because it just gets you confused. So he does that with spiritual beings. He creates this spiritual beings, this divine council, and he's going to rule through them also. And it seems like Adam and Eve were eventually going to join the divine council someday. 
So when the serpent says, you'll be like God, or like the sons of God, he was not wrong. It's just that, well, not God's like, well, you're not, you're not going to become one of the sons of God that way. Sorry, can't have it. And if we go through the rest of the biblical text, we can see that humanity was actually supposed to be elevated to the role of the divine council to rule alongside these spiritual beings. You have human beings and spiritual beings ruling alongside one another. Now, some of you guys are like, this is not making any sense because you've never been taught this way, right? This is just stuff that churches and pastors and Sunday school teachers, we just avoid because it gets all kinds of problems with people and they don't know what to, how to process it. So, so speak with me here now, if you have any questions, if this is not making sense, but that's kind of the idea. The sons of God, the B'nai Elohim are members of the divine council. It could be angels and the divine council could be angelic beings. That's what, who rule alongside God. They, however, came down and had sexual relations with women and gave birth, maybe that's what the Nephilim are. And God's like, okay, this is not what I planned. So God says, okay, my spirit's not going to contend with humanity any longer. No, it's if, to go back one more th thought here, and if anyone wants to interject a question, please do so. But if the fall narrative is Genesis 3, 4, 5, it's, keep, it's continuing on. Guess what's going on? It's getting worse and worse and worse. So that, we're going to find out in, in a few verses, every thought of their heart was only evil continuously. That's verse 5, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It's like, okay, this is really getting bad now. So let's do something about it. So that's the general thing. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as, as we proceed. That the sons of God are members of the divine council that rebelled against God, came down, had sexual relations with women, and had offspring. And those offspring are the Nephilim. Okay, Anthony, yeah, please. Yeah, please don't take us the wrong way. It may That's have fine. been an errant teaching, but I had a, a teaching once that we we have these gross misperceptions of what heaven will be, and mm -hmm. we base that upon our, our life here on earth. But the the instructor went on to say that, and he, he knew this was going to stir the pot, but that there are no there is no sexual identity in heaven. There's no need for sexual organs because we're in eternity, or we're well, we're in the age to come. We're not in eternity because we can't go past, but we're in the age to come. So if there's no sexual organs in heaven, although I may still be a male and I may be a female, we don't have the need for sex. So there's no organs. Where would the, the divine council have need for organs? Okay. Number one, I'd say, where do you get the idea that there's no organs in the new Jerusalem? Well, there's no, need for, there's, there's no need for children. So why would you yeah, need them? It just because you don't need them doesn't mean that you don't have them. Yeah. Right. Does it make, make sense? So when Jesus rose from the dead, did his sexual organs come with him or not? And if Jesus's resurrection body is the first fruit from among the dead, now we don't know the answer, right? Because you can't argue either way. Right. Because we're assuming he was clothed. He simply said, look at the nail marks on my hands on my side. So we don't know. Okay. What we know is this. There's no reproduction in the New Jerusalem because there's no need to fill the earth. The purpose of having sex is to fill the earth. Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. That's happened. So the earth is full. But that doesn't mean that there's no sexual organs. So I, I'm not sure I buy that premise necessarily. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, some people go to the Gospel of Luke and says, well, it says angels don't marry. Okay, that's fine. But it doesn't say they can't have sex. It just says they don't marry. You can't prove yourself either way now, right? We're kind of, we're kind of left there. 
But I would simply say that reasoning, because you can't prove it, you can't use that to say this isn't sex, this isn't angels, uh, to say because they don't have gender. The reality is, can an angel incarnate? And if they can incarnate, they take on flesh. If they can, then they can take on a male flesh with male genitals and have sex with a woman. That, that's, we don't know that, but that seems to be what the text is saying. And to simply say, well, they don't have genitals, A, well, maybe they don't, but that doesn't mean that they can't incarnate and take it on. And, take it on. and, and B, uh, well, you just can't prove that. The next thing to say would be this. We actually have a story of a woman having a child from a spiritual being. It's in the gospel of Matthew and Luke. I mean, the virgin birth of Jesus. So yes, this story in Genesis 6 is actually really wild. It's wacky. But the virgin birth is just as wacky, if you think about it that way. Because she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The reality is the virgin birth of Jesus is also kind of, it's really out there. And so I think we're kind of left with that. Now, here's the deal. This story is really weird. And, it, and the first question is this. When we're, when we're addressing it, and it, mind you, it's very complicated, and I'll kind of give you what I think of it, and we can kind of go on there, and if you agree, that's fine. It doesn't matter. The key first question is going to be, what's the purpose of this? Why is it in there? What's, why is it in the text? And it seems to be in the text to explain why God says, I'm going to flood the world. Because what we're doing is we're building up a narrative to say it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and here you go. So... All right, and you and all the different views of who the sons of God are can kind of justify that. So that's fine. So this is clearly not essential to anything, any bit whatsoever. But moving forward, I do think it does remind us in a more vivid way what you see in the New Testament: our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual force of, of evil in the heavenly realms. You see the fact that Satan tempted Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. You see in the book of Daniel, you see the, the prince of Persia, which is a demonic being. And as you see the fact that the book of Revelation, you've got the dragon who empowers the beast, the dragon Satan or the Satan. The dragon's one of the divine council members and he empowers the beast. And what's the beast? It's the kings of the world. What you see in the biblical text, not just in Genesis. So let's just throw this passage out. We don't need it. Is the fact that the kings of the world ultimately and kingdoms of the world are ultimately at war against the people of God. That's the, and you're going to see that in Deuteronomy 32, if we can get time to get there when we get to Genesis chapters 10 and 11, that God's like, okay, I'm going to give the kings of the world over to the, over to the other entities, the, the sons of God, and I'm going to take Israel as my chosen people. And then eventually my kingdom will overtake the other kingdoms. But Deuteronomy 32 says that the kingdoms of the world are, are given over to the sons of God, the Elohim. And I think that's what you're seeing here then is this is this cosmic battle, this cosmic warfare. And I think that reminds us as Christians as A, Vladimir Putin's not my enemy. He's a made in God's image and someone that I need to proclaim the gospel to and live the gospel out in love, et cetera. That doesn't mean he can't be influenced by the enemy, however, but it just means all nations are trying to do power, trying to impose their will, often at the expense of the poor and the marginalized. This is the biblical story that we have. And I think this fits into that. But if we want to throw this out because it's really hard to grapple with, that's fine. Let's, let's move on. Question, Rob. Even yeah. though I think you addressed it here, okay. if I stop and think about it, but the question I was going to ask a few minutes ago was, do we know why the divine council or members of the divine council rebelled against yeah. God or why they were rebelling? And 
did this. Right. We have no answer to that, right? And another question that arises is, are we reading these stories in chronological order? Meaning the rebellion of the divine. This, so if you have the serpent in Genesis 3 as a member of the divine council who's clearly rebelled, and then is this story here in Genesis 6 now, the rest of the divine council, or most of them, some of them, them rebelling, is this their rebelling story? It's hard to answer that, right? Because again, the stories focus more upon the humanity side of the story and God's desire to create humanity in his image and for them to rule than it is to discuss the divine council and when they came about, how long have they been around? When do they fall? How that We're not told that part of the story. And remember, the reason for that is simply is this. Genesis is not giving us this cosmological uh, treatise. And what we mean by that is a treatise telling you about the history of the universe. It's, that's not what it's giving us. It's giving us a history of Israel. God's choosing of Israel and their call to be faithful what Adam and Eve were, were supposed to do. So Israel's role is to do what Adam and Eve did. So the is, Adam and Eve story is really important here. And why did, how and why and when did God call Israel to do what God calls Israel to do? And it's the Abraham story. That's the, we're leading up to Abraham. And the story of Genesis is written to his descendants to explain their story. And as a result, then the sons of God enter into the story and they're relevant characters, but we don't get the backstory on them. It's kind of like if you're watching all the Star Wars things that are coming up on Disney, we're getting all these backstories and back. There's like six movies and now there's like 45 backstories. I think it's fun. It's really cool. So we don't get that. We only get the, maybe George Lucas could make some for us and then fill in the backstories of the biblical text. Any questions on that? I hope that's making sense to you. Well, let me be honest. It's not going to make sense to you. If this is the first time you've heard this or the second or third time, you're still like, okay, ah, whatever. And the reality is, yeah, let's, let's, right, let's move on. And then we'll come back to it because we're going to look at the, at the sons of God in the, in the scriptures if we have time. So let's go to chapter six. I put in the notes, it's chapter six, five through nine, 29, but we're only going to do the first four verses of that. The flood story now starts in six, five through nine, 29. Uh, somebody want to read Genesis six, five through eight. I can read it. Thank you. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought of was always completely evil. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth and he was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off the land, the human race that I've created from human, human beings to livestock, to the crawling things, to the birds in the skies, because I regret I ever made them. But as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. Okay. So first fill in the blank is God saw. And there you go. Another link term to get the sons of God saw and they took that they were good and they took. So God saw Oh, And what did God see? Everyone is guilty. Not good. Now the next, I'm just going to mention this to you. It's not a really big deal, but I think I have put this in your notes here. Uh, letter B, God felt sorry, uh, tormented. The Hebrew word is naham, um, that he had made mankind, uh, except for Noah. And there's a word play there because the word for Noah, it's basically the same letters as the word naham in Hebrew. They don't mean the same thing, but nonetheless, the problem is, is what do we do with this word sorry, tormented, regret, things of that nature? And a, one of the leading evangelical biblical scholars, and I think it, he still doesn't mind being called an evangelical, John Walton says, I don't think this makes sense as God felt sorry that he made mankind. 
uh, or that God was grieved that he made mankind. And his point actually is this. If you're sorry for doing something, you won't do it again. So if God was sorry that he made mankind, he'd just wipe them out and say, okay, I'm done. But he doesn't wipe them out. He saves Noah and Noah's family and doesn't start over completely. Uh, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a new beginning. It's a new creation nonetheless. But that's kind of the idea. So Walton goes on to discuss the fact, I, put the, I think I put this in your notes, that it has to do more of, with accounting. And the fact is, I've audited their accounts. This is chapter point number three. I've audited their accounts uh, since I've made them. And the balance ledgers don't come out very good. And I need to start over. I need to balance the books again. It's, it's an economic term. I need to balance the books. Uh, and note, by the way, that God balanced the books with grace and mercy, um, not with punishment. It's a very common thing in the biblical text that the very first time someone kills someone, God has mercy. When King kills Abel, God's like, you know what? You need to pay. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I mean, I haven't written this yet, but I'm going to tell Moses, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and you've got to, he doesn't do that. Cain says, look, they're going to kill me. And God's like, well, you deserve it. He doesn't say that either. So God says, you know, I'm going to send you away, and I'm going to put a mark on you, whatever that might mean. You're protected. It's mercy. So again, the idea that we read the biblical story with God as this evil guy upstairs wanting to render justice at all costs, at all times, which doesn't fit with the biblical story of God as love and for God to love the world, we should immediately recognize there's a problem here because which one is it? Maybe it's the fact that he's actually not this evil ogre sitting upstairs wanting to bring judgment upon everybody. All right, so the next thing, now, here we go. God decides he's going to blot them out, but Noah found favor with God. Okay, Noah founds favor. And you can argue two ways, whether that's found favor or won favor. Of course, if you say he won favor, then you're making you know, works a more prominent role in the biblical story. Doesn't, whatever you want to do, that's fine with me. But here's the key thing with Noah. And this, it's this theme of a remnant. Now, again, this is, I don't think this is a, a global flood. I think you're still looking at the story of Adam's generations, whatever. There are other people around. It's not a global flood. Well, we can talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. But God's starting over with Noah. And he's got Noah. He's got his sons. He's got him an ark. Uh, all the animals. Here we go. Let's try it again. Let's see what we can do. So Noah found favor with God. And it's this theme of a remnant. So in the book of Isaiah, when God says, I'm going to wipe them all out, but then the holy seed is its stump. That's Isaiah chapter six. I think it's verse 12, 13. The holy seed is its stump. Ah, God's going to, uh, Israel's a tree and it's going to be knocked down, but the holy seed is its stump. Ah, we know that the seed is Jesus, but it's also a shoot. It's a, it's a branch. It's this remnant that God's going to preserve. God always preserves a remnant. And I think that's really significant, especially as we talk about, you know, modern day Western Christianity, like, yeah, it's, it's gone pretty far astray. It's pretty corrupt. And the answer is there's still a remnant there, guys. There's still a remnant. We could be totally disillusioned by everything we see in the Western Christian church and it's embracing of nationalism. It's embracing of all these different things and the anger and the hate and everything else. And like, there's a remnant there. And let's just keep looking at that remnant and keep our eyes on that and even make ourselves uh, in that remnant. All right, any questions? We've got a few more minutes here. So let's look at these references that are on the bottom of our notes. And what I want you to note and what we, the answer to the story is, is that sons of God always in the plural refers to the heavenly council. It just does. So to go back to Genesis 6, it, it can't mean anything else. So Psalm 29, verse 1. Somebody wants to read it. Go ahead. Ascribe to the Lord, sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Sons of the mighty, of course, are sons of the Elohim. 
uh, doesn't prove to you that they are uh, angelic beings. We'd have to look at the whole, whole passage. Psalm 82. Psalm 82, which is really key. Let's read Psalm 82, 1 through 8. I know we're not going to have time to read to discuss the whole thing, but if someone wants to read verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 82. I got it. Thank you. Uh, plea for justice. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are God's children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Ah, now notice verse 8, all the nations belong to you. Kind of file that next, I think it's next, no, in two weeks we'll look at uh, Deuteronomy 32 and say, actually in Deuteronomy 32, God gave the nations to the sons of God. And now he's like, oh, take them back. Now here's the problem, uh, if you didn't follow that well, and that is your translation. Anthony's did a great job. God takes his stands in the divine council, I think his, his translation read in verse 1, whereas the New American Standard says in his own congregation. New American Standard says he judges in the midst of rulers, and that's actually in the midst of the Elohim. So no doubt, verse 1 is talking about the Elohim and the divine council. And look what it says. I said you are God, or you are Elohim. And again, we get thrown back here because we're like, well, there's only one God. Okay, the word Elohim is a generic word for the gods, and yet God himself, Yahweh, can also be called Elohim, but he's an Elohim of, of a unique one. He, he's the only one of his kind. So the other Elohim might exist, but there's only one Yahweh. I, I am the Lord and there is no other. He, he's unique, and you could say he's eternal, he's holy, you know, that's fine, all, all those things there. But the text is talking here in Psalm 82 about the sons of Elohim as on the divine council. You guys are supposed to be ruling over the nations, and you're not doing a very good job because you're not defending the fatherless or the weak or the afflicted, the destitute. Verse 6, I said you are gods. You're all sons of the Elohim, or sons of the Most High there, El Elyon. And nevertheless, you're going to die like mere men. Arise, O God. You judge against them. That's the best example that you have there. Job chapter 1, somebody have a comment? All right, Job chapter 1, verse 6. We'll just look at a couple of verses really quickly. I have that. Thank you very much. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Go ahead and do verse chapter 2, verse 1, and, and pay note of the translations because yours are going to be different than Anthony's. Okay. Uh, attack on Job's health. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, the Hebrew says B'nai Elohim in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter uh, 1, verse 6. When the sons, my translation says when the sons of God, or when the sons of Elohim. So when the sons of Elohim, chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 1, it's this heavenly council. They came uh, to present themselves before the Lord. Again, they're co-rulers with God because God has no problem delegating rule and, and rulership. And then Job 38, verse 7, will say something similar to that. And what's the point? And I'll just kind of reiterate this and we'll finish up unless you leave all confused. Yeah, it, it is verse seven. I just want to see if we want to read more though. So you want to read, John? You have it? 
Go back to verse four and give us some context. Okay. Verses four through seven. Thank you. Okay. This is the NIV. Okay. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the... Let me put the right emphasis on that. Mm -hmm. Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Okay, very interesting. And to note your translations, are all they're all doing something to us. And that is the sons of God, sons of Elohim is a difficult concept. A lot of evangelicals don't like it. So it's not surprising that the NIV just kind of like left that out and just called them angels. And that's, they probably are angels. That's fine. But look at the context. Verse one, the Lord speaking to Job, chapter 38, verse one. And he's like, okay, Job, you've, you've gone too far and you're challenging me now. So gird yourself like a man. Um, I'm going to ask you and you're going to answer me. So where were you, verse four, when I laid the foundations of the earth? So the context is, Job, you weren't there when I created the heavens and the earth. When I set its measurements, do you know who laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of Elohim shouted for joy. So verse seven should be the sons of Elohim. John said angels. That's fine. It's correct. But we're just getting away from the sons of Elohim thing because believing in that is problematic. But here's the point. The sons of Elohim were there when God created the world. Job, you weren't but the sons of Elohim were. And so you see that it's this divine council. We don't know a whole lot more about it other than they were there. God, they're created. That's fine. God rules through them. He rules through Adam. That's true. And apparently in Genesis six, they came down and had sex with women and created all kinds of weird, wacky beings. And I don't know what to do with that. No. Oh, by the way, here you go. Jude verse six. Let's finish with that. This is the new Testament. Okay. So now, What's happening is Genesis 6 is being interpreted by the Jewish people and by the Jewish world. What are they doing with it? Well, they're doing with what I just said. They had come to conclude, and First Enoch says it this way, that the sons of God are angelic beings or the, uh, the divine council that came down, had sex with men, had sex with women. So look at Jude verse 6. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He's a kept in eternal bonds and a darkness for the judgment of the great day. That is basically a quote from the book of First Enoch. And you might not know about First Enoch, but First Enoch is a Jewish writing before the time of Jesus, in which the and in First Enoch chapter six through ten. If you want to, actually, you could probably look it up. I'm sure you could do it. I'm sure it's free. So for, um, First Enoch chapter six through ten describe their view of Genesis six. What's happening with the sons of God? Well, read first in chapter six through 10, and you'll figure it out. And the answer is, it's what Job chapter six, Job verse six is, is saying, that angels left their abode, came down and became incarnated and became human-like, had sex with women. So, and that's what uh, is happening in first Enoch. So that's the Jewish world. And so my answer is actually, we're stuck with this interpretation because the New Testament affirms it. So, you know, it's if we only had the Old Testament, we can like, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's maybe sons of God or, or descendants of, of uh, Seth and like, no, the New Testament affirms that these are angelic beings or the divine council that came down and made a mess of things. So, so since they came down at that point, are they no longer angels and are they, is it demonic? I mean, 
Sure, I would say that it's definitely demonic in the sense that if the divine counts are angelic beings, I've tried to refuse the word angels because I don't want you to blur them. They're like superior angels, right? They're like they're the divine counsel. They're the sons of God, sons of Elohim. And angels aren't called the sons of Elohim, but the sons of Elohim are called angels. Does that make sense? The sons of Elohim are angelic beings who then rebelled. And so that, yeah, that by definition makes it a demon. And that's this biblical spiritual warfare story that Bible really makes a big deal about. And the spiritual beings are in control of the kingdoms of the world. And we need to realize that. Um, doesn't mean the kings of the world, we can't pray that they do right, pray for the kings and advocate for justice, but we should not be surprised when they do evil and oppression, because this is the war that's been going on all along. So, all right, I won't trump that horn anymore. Any, are we good? Any questions? Boy, that thoroughly, this whole last several minutes has really <laughs> thrown me for a loop. Okay, we'll talk to me uh, about it. And, you know, my what I thought was maybe greater than a basic understanding, but I granted I've barely scratched the surface. Yeah. Um, when I hear the term sons of God, children of God, mm. uh, I think of good things, good people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think of bad people mm. or people doing bad things or wrong things. Uh, sons of God to me sounds holy, righteous. Yep. Because um, in the New uh, Testament, uh, it does mean that in the New Testament. Yeah. Blessed, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they yep. will be called the children of God. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, so now, and then I even struggle with, you know, the angels being bad, but I think I understand that yeah. Satan at one time was an angel and he had sure. fallen. I, he was one of the sons of so God. I, so I can, I, I think I can understand that part okay. better. Difficult for me to understand and accept this understanding of um, sons of God being uh, doing bad things, not being righteous. So in the Old Testament, and I'm not certain of this, but it's used predominantly. It may be used all the time, but I'm not certain of that for this divine counsel. And they go bad. That's all you need to know. Now, if you throw that out and forget about it, we're still good because the point that I think is so significant is made emphatically in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation. That is the beast, the dragon empowers the beast. The dragon is the serpent. That's Satan. It's the son of sons of God. It's the Elohim who have fallen and they empower the kings of the world. That, that is something that we do not have a very good grasp of. And we make serious errors when we fail to understand that significance. So you can throw this, the Elohim thing out of it. Don't worry about it. But that's, I think, what Genesis is doing. And you can understand why has this been so... One of the reasons why it's hard to reckon with is because you just don't hear about it. And we don't hear about it because, well, we want a softer, gentler exactly. Bible that, that doesn't create all these problems and it doesn't advocate these weird worldviews that I don't know what to do with. And... We have a modernist worldview and God fits in that box and that's the way it is. And so, well, our translations will even help us out a little bit, but I probably wouldn't teach this in a Sunday school class at most, in most churches either, just because it's just going to create too much trouble. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.